0: Hi everyone, thank you for joining us for episode 42 of Infraction, our True Crime Podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's episode is a listener suggestion from Tanya Bannock. Today we will be discussing the disappearance and murder of Alison Baden Clay, who disappeared from Brookfield, a well-to-do semi-rural suburb in the city of Brisbane, Australia. Alison was born to her parents, Jeff and Priscilla Dickey, on the 1st of July 1968 in Queensland, Australia. She did well at school, and growing up she committed her time to ballet. She dreamt of becoming a professional ballerina, but unfortunately, Alison's shyness and social anxiety meant that she was overlooked by ballet schools, and at the age of 15 she was dropped by her dance college. Alison went to university where she excelled, learning six different languages. After university, Alison put the skills she'd learnt during her ballet days to good use and entered beauty pageants. In 1993, she was crowned Miss Brisbane, and this worked wonders to grow Alison's confidence. Alison was the exact sort of woman Gerard Baden-Clay was looking for in a wife. She was beautiful, talented, and had good standing in the community. Gerard Baden-Clay was two years younger than Alison, and he was born on the 9th of September 1970, here in England, in Bournemouth. He didn't stay in England long, and when he was just a year old, his parents migrated to Zimbabwe. There in Zimbabwe, Gerard's parents changed their family name from Jess Clay to the hyphenated Baden Clay to associate themselves with the prestigious Lord Baden Powell. Lord Baden Powell was Gerard's great grandfather and he was famous for founding the Scouts. His wife, Lady Baden Powell, was famous for creating the female version of the Scouts, the Guides. In 1980, the newly named Baden-Clay family moved from Zimbabwe to Australia, where Gerard attended school and then trained in accountancy. From 1991 to 1993, Gerard worked as an accountant in the audit department of KPMG. Then, in 1994, he started work at Flight Centre in Brisbane, initially as a travel consultant, but then he changed roles to become an office and recruitment systems manager. Alison was also working at Flight Centre, and it was there that the couple met. Initially, Gerard had tried to set Alison up with someone else, but soon he realised that he had grown feelings for her. Alison and Gerard started dating, and in 1997 the couple got married. The start of the couple's marriage was filled with excitement and they both travelled the world together. They travelled to London and lived in England for six months, both working jobs in the financial sector. They also travelled the rest of Europe and settled in Switzerland for three months, There, Gerard paid homage to his name's legacy and volunteered at the Candlestick International Scout Centre, a centre for scouts that provided lodges, chalets and campsites to all scout members. In 1999, the happily married couple made their way back to Australia and settled in Brookfield. Brookfield has been described by locals as being country living with the city convenience. It's a homely, peaceful suburb that is considered to be very safe, and therefore it seemed like the perfect place for Alison and Gerard to start a family. In 2001, the couple welcomed their first daughter into the world, and within the next few years, they had two more daughters. The family of five lived in rented accommodation, a fairly modest home, but Gerard wanted more for himself and his family. In late 2003, Gerard obtained his real estate agent's licence, and in 2004, he started running his own upmarket real estate franchise. He was now selling beautiful homes to other people, and he realised how badly he wanted to own one of these homes for himself and his family. Alison was still working at Flight Centre, she'd gone back there after they'd returned from travelling, and she was doing well to work her way up the career ladder. All in all, the Baden-Clays had a picture-perfect life. They had a comfortable life, three beautiful daughters, a home in a great neighbourhood... They were well known in the community, and Gerard's real estate franchise meant that he was constantly in the community's limelight. Everything was absolutely perfect to the outside world until seven fifteen a.m. on Friday, the twentieth of April, twenty twelve, when Gerard Badenclay Clay phoned the police. Nine six zero.
1: Thank you, police emergency. What's your location? Uh, good morning, Brookfield. Whereabouts in Brookfield, sir? Uh, Five nine three Brookfield Road, Brookfield. And what's happening there? Um, I, I don't want to be alarmist. I tried the 131 number, but it um, just went on forever. Yep. My, my wife isn't home. Um, and um, I don't know where she is. Okay. When, when did you last see her, sir? Um, last night when we went to bed, um, when I went to bed. And I got up a, this morning and she, she wasn't there. And that's not unusual. She, she often goes for a walk in the morning. Yep. Um, I've texted her and called her a number of times. I think she has her phone with her. Yep. Um, but, um, and... What time I, does she normally get back when she gets her walk? this morning she, she was planning to... She has a seminar in the city, so she was planning to leave by, you know, around 7. And,
0: okay. Um,
1: she's not back. Yet. OK, all right. And what's so your wife? I'm now driving the streets. My, my father's come over and to look after my children. Yeah, OK. So what was, what's your name, first of all? I'm sorry. Gerard. Um, G-E-R-A-R-D. And your last name, Jared? Baden Clay. B-A-D-E-N. Yep. Hyphen C-L-A-Y. And what's your wife's name? Alison, with two L. And same surname? Same surname. OK. And how old is Alison? Um, um, forty-four. Okay, so you didn't see her before she got up this morning, so... No. Okay, all right. All right, and how tall is your wife? Um, another, um, about five-six, something like that, I think. Okay, and what colour hair has she got? She okay. just had it done, night. No, it's sort of a blondie... Brownie, reddish sort of.
0: Yep, and how long is
1: it?
0: Uh, shoulder length. Shoulder Alison Baden Clay was missing. After this phone call, the police sent officers round to Gerard's house and he emerged from the house dressed in his suit, ready for work. He confirmed to the officers that he'd woken up that morning and his wife was gone. He'd assumed that she'd gone out for a morning walk, but then he was surprised that she never came back. He said that he had texted and called her, but she hadn't responded at all. Investigators later checked his phone and confirmed that he had sent the following text messages to his wife. At 6.20am, he wrote, Good morning. Hope you slept well. Where are you? None of the girls are up yet. Love, G. He waited 20 minutes and then his phone showed that he had loaded the Find My Friends app and had searched for Alison. He then sent the following text at 6.41am. Al, Al, Getting concerned. Where are you? The app doesn't say either. Two of the girls now up. I'm dressed and about to make lunches. Please just text me back or call. Love, G. Next, Gerard had called his father, who in turn had called Olivia, Gerard's sister, and the two made their way to Gerard and Alison's home. Olivia started scouring the neighbourhood in her car, and Gerard took the family vehicle to search along Alison's usual walking routes. Gerard's father stayed home with his granddaughters. Olivia, Gerard's sister, said that she'd stopped and had spoken to a council worker, some mums from the school, and a caretaker. She said that nobody had seen Alison. Olivia said that she then got out of her car and walked down to a creek, but she couldn't see anything. Gerard said that he had driven the walking routes that he knew Alison normally took, but he couldn't find her anywhere. At this point, Gerard had phoned the police from the car, and that is the phone call we just heard. At his home, Gerard was initially forthcoming with information about his missing wife, but soon he started getting agitated. He accused the police officers of constantly asking him the same questions, and he told them that he'd answer all the questions in the world, but he just wanted to get out of the house and look for his wife. The officers looked at Gerard and were not fazed by his Pillar of the Community-style outfit. His suit, tie and cufflinks did nothing to hide the scratch marks that Gerard was sporting on his right cheek. I'll put the photo on Instagram, but there were two, possibly three, jagged red vertical lines down Gerard's right cheek. The officers asked Gerard what happened, and he said that he had cut himself shaving. The police called for backup, and shortly, Sergeant Jackson and Senior Sergeant Curtis arrived at the Baden Clay household. They knocked on the door, and Gerard answered. Sergeant Jackson opened his mouth to introduce himself, but before he could say anything, Gerard pointed to his cheek and stated, Cut myself shaving. The officer said that he was very taken aback because he hadn't even asked. Quite concerned about Gerard's appearance and behavior, the police asked him to accompany them to the police station to make a formal statement, and Gerard reluctantly agreed.
2: From what you've said though, I kind of feel I always think it's so hard to judge how someone reacts when they've like their partners like missing or do you know what I mean like and I know that it's quite eerie when people show no emotion or yeah seem like crazy but actually from what you've said it sounds to me like he's almost reacting kind of normally like it would be frustrating answering questions possibly do you not think like and if you just wanted to be out there looking the scratches i agree are weird but from what i've heard about his behavior i kind of think that is possibly how i would behave if my significant other was missing
0: yeah, I think I agree with you. I think it is really hard. And it's always easy to like look back on situations and kind of, yeah, like be an armchair critic of how people do react in yeah. the most awful time in their life. Um, I think for the police officers, it was more to do with the fact that he was fully dressed, showered, had cufflinks links on. Um, I well, would think... that not
2: just be because he did all of that at a point where it's like, if, he, if it's normal for his wife to go for a walk... Say so he's mm-hmm. got up and showered and then he's like, actually, do you know what? it's quite strange, he's not back yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I completely, I can see it from both points of view, yeah, I definitely can. Um, which is probably why they wanted him to come down to the station, just to make a formal statement, just to kind of iron out all of this. But yeah, I agree, I think at this point in time it's really, you can't really infer anything from his clothing or his behaviour or possibly yeah. just the scratch marks on his face you can um, yeah. question. But other than that, yeah, I agree with you. At this point I think... It's it's really easy to look back and and comment on these things, isn't it? In that moment, you never know how someone's going to react. Yeah, exactly. So when they arrived at the Indrapilly police station, Gerard requested to speak to his lawyer. Meanwhile, Jeff and Priscilla Dickey, Alison's parents, started a formal command post at the local cricket clubhouse and members of the community came down to help them start their searches. Alison's parents also went on the news and did a press conference, asking for anyone who had seen anything to come forward. The appeal was incredibly moving and they were clearly unbelievably heartbroken. It's unclear what happened at the police station. Presumably Gerard did give a formal statement in the presence of his lawyer, but shortly after being taken into the station, Gerard was released. Upon his release, however, instead of joining the rest of the community and the police in searching for his wife, Gerard Clay retreated from the public eye. As I'm sure you can imagine, all this did was fuel the media and they started tracking his every move. They found him to be hiding out at his parents' home with his sister.
2: Actually, it's quite amazing that the police were having that response already because so often you hear that like, the police don't do anything for like 36 hours or long enough for them really to be deemed missing. So I think it's quite good in this case that they clearly have taken him at his word that she is nearly always back by now and have kind of got straight on the case
0: oh my god, yeah, yeah, that actually seems so obvious when you say that like that, but I hadn't even thought of that. That's so true. Yeah, there's no evidence of, like, blood anywhere or any signs of foul play. So, yeah, they are just taking him on his word. Um, Yeah, I really agree with that, actually. Yeah, it's obviously really good. It's great for um, her family that they did react so quickly.
2: Yeah, and then it's hard, isn't it? Because I suppose if he, at this point, feels like he's starting to be a suspect of the police, then, again, it's like, would you go and hide out? I mean, it seems quite a contrast to the person to given earlier that he didn't want to answer any questions and just wanted to be out looking for his wife to the fact that he's now like hiding away but again you kind of wonder like if the police were maybe quite aggressive in their interview style or like insinuated that they thought it was him like that could possibly be why he's now retreating like or maybe he just knows that they're sort of onto him so he's kind of giving up the family man act early just it's interesting isn't it that he suddenly had like that change in behavior
0: yeah, yeah, completely. And, and like we said, don't know what like what was said at the police station, mm. but presumably they pushed him quite hard, you know, for them to be yeah. at the house and the initial officers to be like, oh, mm, this doesn't seem right. Let's call in kind of like backups and more senior officers. Um, and the fact that when they arrived, they were like, oh, we probably need to get this, you know, get, get him down to the station to have a conversation with him sort of formally about this. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, mm. I think it's just difficult, isn't it? Because you do expect... And it's another one of those things, I guess, isn't it? Like, how would you react in that situation? But I do just think that most people, and I think the media and the public, they just wanted to see a comment from him. Um, yeah, yeah. And beforehand, he was
2: really keen to be out there helping. Mm. So it does seem quite weird that he's now not.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. So whilst Gerard was hiding out at his parents' house, Behind the closed doors of the police station, the officers discussing the investigation decided that it would be a good idea if they took some photos of Gerard's quote-unquote shaving cuts. They asked Gerard to come back to the police station for some photos, and he said that he would. Then, at 3pm on Sunday the 22nd of April, just two days after Alison had been reported missing, Gerard Baden Clay, on his way to the police station, had a car accident. What? His family car had been impounded by the police for forensic testing and therefore he was driving a friend's vehicle. He reportedly lost control and he crashed into what I can really only describe as a big pillar of concrete that kind of holds up. It kind of looks like it's holding up a bridge. It's like separating two lanes on a road. Um, Onlookers reported to the media that Gerard... Flung open the driver's door after he'd crashed and he fell to the floor and he was pulling himself along the floor with his arms um, as if he was paralysed and couldn't move his legs. These onlookers also reported that he just kept saying sorry and also call my lawyer.
2: Mm.
0: The police arrived at the scene along with paramedics and they asked Gerard if he was okay and they asked him what had happened. He was very shady and again, just asked for his lawyer. To clarify, he was totally fine. The car accident was incredibly minor um but despite this gerard repeatedly told the paramedics that he was quote in pain all over his body and when they asked him what his name was he again repeated that he just needed his lawyer
2: who needs a lawyer
0: after a car crash or do you think he's trying to pretend he's had a head injury it it, it's literally I, i don't know what he's trying to i don't know why he was acting like he was paralyzed and that kind of thing like and i'm not joking you can like see it online like the car accident was just like it's just Stuff. literally, he just drove into a concrete pillar. Yeah, it was just nothing. It looked like a stunt, exactly. Um, so because he'd been saying that he was in pain all over his body, the paramedics cut Gerard's shirt off him to assess where he was injured. Um, at this point, though, Gerard started pleading with them to not take his shirt off. Ooh. Regardless, they did it anyway. And the medical team noted that Gerard had a large red mark on his chest and a smaller, similar mark on his neck. Later, when questioned by the police about these marks, Gerard said that they had occurred in the accident, and then he changed his story and he said that he had been stung by a caterpillar and was having a reaction. So there are caterpillars in Australia and in other parts of the world that can cause a rash-like reaction on humans. I'm no caterpillar expert, but you'll all be interested to hear, I'm sure, that these caterpillar species that have toxins in their little hairs include the buck moth, spiny oak slug the hickory tussock moth the saddleback and coincidentally my nickname for sally the southern flannel <laughs> none of these caterpillar species were native to brookfield where gerard lived and therefore the police knew that he was lying the police felt that it was no coincidence that gerard had had this car accident so soon after they'd requested he come into the station to have photographs taken of his face and body They believed that it was quite possible that he had crashed the vehicle in an attempt to cause more injuries to himself to cover up the marks on his body or to simply use the accident as an explanation for why the injuries were there. The police did take photographs of the marks on his face and his chest and neck and those photographs will be on social media if you want to have a look at them. So after the photos were taken, Gerard returned to his parents' home. The media had still not managed to get any statement from Gerard or his family about the disappearance of Alison. Soon, Gerard's behaviour became even stranger. If he was out and he saw a news crew, he would run away as fast as he could. He would sprint from the front door to his car and speed off. And one time, he even jumped a fence just to get away from them. This was incredibly strange behaviour from a man who wasn't even a named suspect in his wife's disappearance, Mm. and who had told the police, like you said from the outset, that he didn't want to waste time answering their questions because he wanted to be out searching for his wife.
2: Yeah, and if you don't want media attention, which is completely, like, fair enough, and his prerogative, you would surely, like, you know, just put your head down and walk away. Like, the stranger you act in front of a camera, the more you attract that camera, and it just seems, yeah, bizarre. It's like, just, you know, play a silent, sorrowful man, if that's what it takes, if you don't want to be a kind of really vocal, searching partner. But to sort of go to such odd, extreme lengths... Yeah, just adds to the appeal. And he must have been recognising that. Like, they weren't going away. Surely, you know, address your behaviour. Give them a bit of what they want. Or, yeah, or just don't go out.
0: I know, I definitely agree. And like you said, there are just better ways to do it. Yeah, just keep your head down. Don't jump over fences. Don't almost hit the media by speeding away in your car. You know, Mm. like on one occasion, he almost like ran over um, a guy with a camera. And it's just like, what are you doing? Like, of course, that's just going to spark the wrong attention and give the you know give the media almost like a different story to run other than that of your disappear, like the disappearance of your wife so yeah it does seem really like counterintuitive
2: yeah yeah adds like you know aggressive
0: husband yeah on the 29th of April 2012 however nine days after he had reported his wife missing Gerard did break his silence in the media good choice He emerged from his parents' home and walked to the front of the garden where a news reporter from Nine News was standing, and with his sister standing next to him, he finally spoke to the media. This would be the only statement Gerard Baden-Clay would ever give the media. In this podcast, we've spoken about one other husband who has gone on TV and asked for his wife's safe return, and that man, of course, was Chris Watts. Gerard Baden-Clay had a somewhat different approach to his media stint than Chris Watts did. Gerard put on an incredibly high-pitched voice, sounding almost like he was on the brink of tears, and said that he was working with the police and he trusted the police to find his wife. He also commented that he was looking after his children, and when questioned about his car accident, he said that he was a bit injured, but he was okay. His statement to the media was incredibly short, maybe about a minute or so in length, and he barely mentioned his missing wife at all. What is kind of even more strange about this statement is Gerard's sister, Olivia, she's like stood with her right shoulder pressed into his back and his left shoulder. Like she isn't stood by his side. She is literally plastered onto his back and she looks completely terrified during this very, very short interview. That's so weird. Why would she be in his back? It's just, so I'll put the—I'll put a screenshot of it on social media so people can see as well, but it's like she stood so close to him um, and her facial expressions are genuinely uh, almost as much of a giveaway as Gerard's kind of unnaturally high-pitched voice. Adding to this as well, Gerard appears to purposefully stand with his body angled so that his right cheek with the scratch marks on wasn't picked up by the camera. The reporter later stated that she hadn't even known that he had marks on his face because of the way Gerard had angled himself. Are they
2: not also healing at this point?
0: Um, so it's nine days after. Yeah, I imagine that it would have been almost healed, but presumably there's still some, some marks there or something. mm. So after his very, very short statement, Gerard said that he had uh, to go to an appointment. He just turned and he walked back into the house. Olivia then spoke very briefly to the cameras and said that the public could help them by keeping a vigilant lookout for Alison. She really needn't have bothered with this request to the public, though, because whilst Gerard was shielding his parents' house, the Brookfield community were out in full force assisting the police with their search efforts. They searched industrial bins, woodlands, the creeks and huge areas of Greenland. They put mannequins at the side of the road dressed in the same outfit Alison had been wearing and they put up banners asking passers-by to keep a lookout for her. Why what?
2: Why on earth would you put a mannequin at the side of the
0: road? So that they could see what outfit she had been wearing.
2: I don't know if I find that a bit, like,
0: haunting. I guess it is a little bit, although to be fair, it's a good job they did do it because they do find Alison and it's thanks to that mannequin. (laughs) Okay. Onwards. Thank you. So, on the 30th of April 2012, 10 days after Alison Baden Clay had been reported missing, the search for her came to an end. Darrell Joyce, a college professor and local resident, took his kayak out onto the Brisbane River early in the morning on the 30th of April. As he paddled along, he left the river and joined Colo Creek. He paddled upstream and then, laying on the creek bank under a bridge, he saw a body. As he neared it, he saw that the body was wearing the same clothes that he recognised Alison to be wearing from the mannequins that he'd seen dotted around on the roads and parks. As he got closer, he said that the smell was so strong and he knew that she had passed away. Oh, There was nowhere for him to moor his kayak, so instead he paddled back to shore and rushed back to his home. There he phoned the police and told them what he had seen. It's really strange, but I honestly never thought before, but I did just then, that actually joining like a community
2: search for a body is i mean like it's right and i think i would do it as well but it's actually also a very brave thing to do on the off chance you are the person that like to find you know a body of someone in your community maybe someone you loved or even you know just to see a dead body who might like of a person who's probably died under possibly horrific circumstances like it's actually Mm -hmm. quite commendable isn't it to to be kind of open yeah, I don't know, risk being the person who does find it. I just think, I'd never really thought about it before, but actually, like, the trauma for him having found that, and you hear people say, don't you, like, I'll never not be able to smell that smell and stuff. I don't know, like, you just you don't think a lot about the people that discover
0: um, victims a lot of the time. No, no, yeah, I completely agree with you. It's incredibly commendable. You know, especially also, yeah, like you said, these people are just volunteers just in the community. Mm. It's the same with search and rescue um, teams, though. Most of them are volunteers. Most of them aren't paid. But I guess in that situation, you do get a little bit of training. But yeah, from from this perspective, um, they're just members of the community just trying to help out um, Jeff and Priscilla Dickey to find their daughter. I think, yeah, it's very, very commendable. I agree. So the police quickly searched the creek and they did find the body. They promptly confirmed that it was Alison Baden-Clay and her missing persons case turned into a murder investigation. As I'm sure I've made perfectly obvious with my lack of suspense building and the clear disdain I've shown for the man, Gerard Baden-Clay was suspect number one. The police interviewed him again and this time they pressed him harder. What do you reckon Gerard was up to in his spare time, Sally? What, whilst this is going on or just generally? Just generally in his spare time. Um... What do men like this do?
2: I don't know, sleeping with sex workers or looking
0: up murder fantasies on the internet. <laughs> kind of close. He was having an affair. Oh, uh, okay. So the woman he was having an affair with was Tony McHugh and she had started working for Gerard in 2008 and their affair had started just shortly after she joined his estate agency. In 2011, Alison had found out about the affair and had demanded that Gerard break it off and stated that she wanted them to attend marriage counselling. Gerard did end the affair in 2011, but only for three months. Then he restarted his affair with Tony. Gerard phoned Tony and told her that the police knew about their previous affair. He said, however, that it would be best if Tony downplayed their current relationship. He said that it wouldn't look good on him if the police knew that he was still seeing her. Gerard called Tony a lot in the days following the discovery of Alison's body. He repeatedly told her not to tell the police anything. Unfortunately for Gerard, his pleas were ignored. Tony was brought in for questioning by the police, and when she spoke to the police, she said that Gerard had promised that he would leave his wife and children for her. Mm. Gerard had told Tony that by July 1st, he would have left his wife and that he and Tony could be together properly.
2: Do we know why that date?
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> It was not lost on the officers that July 1st was Alison's birthday. God.
2: That just seems really odd, though.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, incredibly odd. Um, When asked if she had any arguments with Gerard about the fact that he was married, she said that she and Gerard had actually argued on the 19th of April 2012, the day before Alison was reported missing. Tony had found out that Gerard was bringing his wife to a conference that she and Gerard and their other colleagues were going to be at on the 20th the next day. Tony has said to Gerard that she didn't want to be in the same room as Alison. She said it was going to be awkward and awful. Alison had known about their previous affair, and Tony had no doubt that there would be some sort of showdown. These conferences were also where Tony usually had Gerard all to herself. Everyone they worked with knew about their affair, and so they didn't bother to hide their relationship when they were away at work events. That night on the 19th, on the phone, Tony had asked Gerard to come clean to Alison and just admit that their affair was still going on and to tell Alison that he was going to leave her. She said that she didn't hear from Gerard after that phone call until the next day when Gerard phoned Tony to say that Alison was missing. Tony said that she thought that Alison had just lost it when Gerard had come clean about the affair and that she'd run away. The police also found out that, whilst Alison was doing exceptionally well at work and was bringing in a good income, Gerard's income was lagging. He had got himself into some financial difficulties and the couple were falling into a huge amount of oh, debt. A surprise. <laughs> the police speculated that this was possibly why Gerard had not ended his marriage because he simply couldn't afford a divorce. They also discovered that Alison's life insurance policy was 800000 Australian dollars at the time of her death and on the day Alison's body was discovered, Gerard put in an application with the insurance company to retrieve the life insurance. On the day? Mm-hmm. So he said, quote, We had found Alison's body and we knew it had been confirmed that it was her. And dad told me that I really had an obligation to the insurers to let them know. That's why I made the call. It's just... Would that be your priority? The obligation you have to the insurers? But it's almost annoying,
2: isn't it? It's just like... Aside from the fact that this man is just like a pig who's clearly not upset that his wife's body's been found. But it also is just... It's almost irritating because you just think, why are you so why are these people so stupid and moronic? Like, why would you do it the same day? Why would you do it at all? Like how many times do you actually ever hear of people getting away with this and running off mm-hmm. into the sunset with their partner's life insurance policy and their new girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Never. And it's just so angering that like someone lost her life. If assuming this is why someone lost her life for some fucking hairbrained plot by a stupid man who's can't manage his own finances. And, yeah has come up with something that is just a horrific but b just moronic it's just so angering to listen to isn't it like you feel like you've heard it before
0: yeah oh yeah yeah well i mean yeah to some extent like we have it's just it is awful and it's just so infuriating and when he said this so like that quote that i just read he says it's so like nonchalantly like i've listened to the interview where he says it and he, it's just so like oh no well that's just why i did that and it's like mm. that's not a good reason that's ridiculous like oh like because dad told me to do it you're a grown man are like you yeah. right,
2: yeah, and also like why that wouldn't be your dad's priority either, Do you yeah. know what I mean? like he would be he he's not gonna possibly have that on his mind. I would find it very right. hard to believe,
0: hmm no I completely agree, so the police obviously agreed as well, and they very much suspected that Gerard had murdered his wife, but they just needed the proof. They started collecting Gerard's personal belongings from his home and his parents' home and started forensically testing it, hoping to find some evidence that pointed to what happened between Gerard and Alison.
2: Surely as well they need to speak to the children.
0: I don't know if they ever did speak to the children, you know. There's not a lot yeah, of information out there about the children. Yeah. Mm-mm. Probably to ascertain kind of where their relationship was at and whether they fought and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, the medical examiner said that because Alison's body had undergone such significant decomposition, a cause of death could not be identified. He said that the tissue that remained on Alison's body didn't show any definite injuries, but that most of the decomposition had occurred to Alison's head and face. Tests did Mm. show that she hadn't drowned and that the lack of fractures to her body indicated that she hadn't fallen off the bridge that she'd been found underneath. The medical examiner did say that he believed that Alison had been dead for at least 11 days. And based on the reports from friends who had seen Alison 12 days before, the police concluded that she had died on the 19th of April, the day before she was reported missing. The police started losing hope, and then waltzed in Dr Gordon Geimer, the absolute star of this case, in my opinion. Dr Geimer is the director of Queensland's Australasian Herbaria. Essentially, he knows a lot about plant specimens. Dr. Geimer collected the leaves that were found in Alison's hair and on her body and he examined them. He was able to find six different species of plants attached to Alison's body. He said that he was surprised there were no other botanical materials on her body. There was no grass or seeds or anything else like that. He went to Colo Creek where Alison's body had been found and searched around the area for all the different plant specimens that were around there. He noted to the police that he could only find two of the six species of plants that had been found on Alison's body at the creek. He also noted that when he'd walked down to the creek, he had been covered in various seedlings and grass, and he noted that none of these were found on Alison's body. He concluded that Alison must have died somewhere else, and then she had been carried to that spot in the creek. He said that if she had walked down to the water's edge, then she definitely would have had other botanical material on her clothing or in her hair, and so he concluded that her body had been placed there. Next, Dr. Geimer asked the police if he could go to the baden Clay's family home and search the plants there. Of course, they obliged and took Dr. Geimer there immediately. In the back garden, specifically by the back patio, he found all six species of plant that had been found on Alison's body. He determined that Alison must have been killed there. In her house? Mm Mm-hmm. He believed, due to the clusters of plants found in her hair, that she had fallen to the ground on the back patio and that her body was then moved to the creek. Again, he determined that she had not gone to the creek on her own accord because he said there would have been traces of other plant and botanical material on her body. To highlight this further, he walked the 14 kilometers from Alison's home to the creek where her body was found and his clothing and hair was covered in botanical particles that were not found on Alison's body. This discovery and finding from Dr. Geimer coincided with forensic testing that came back from the lab. This forensic testing had been for samples and swabs taken from the baden Clay's family car, and this test showed that there were traces of Alison's blood in the boot of the car, as well as a transfer bloodstain on the inside back panel on one side of the car. This transfer bloodstain came from a significant amount of impact to create the imprint on the side of the panel. There was also drip stains underneath this bloodstain. Essentially, I take this to mean that she had, say, like a head wound. Her head was pressed up against the panel of the door as he tried to put her body in the vehicle. There was kind of enough fresh blood that it left a stain and then it dripped before it dried. What I will say is that the test could not prove how old the blood stain was, although I can't find any explanation that Gerard has given for it being there prior to this. So the chances that the blood belonged to someone other than Alison was one in 5.6 trillion. So it was definitely hers. Um, mm. And he didn't, as far as I can tell, offer up any kind of defence for maybe another time in the past that she'd cut herself and left the stain or anything like that.
2: Interesting. That is amazing, isn't it? These, like You hear these cases and a lot of the time there is experts in incredible fields who contribute, but that's definitely a new one for me. But really kind of obvious now you've heard about it, thinking like the setting that... Found in versus, like we're from, etc. It makes total sense, doesn't it? But I'd never really heard of it in the sense of like botanicals and plants
0: before. Oh, I think it's just so brilliant. He was just so thorough. I just think it was absolutely mm. just incredible, and the way that he was like, he ruled out kind of any other possible. Scenario, you know, he, he did the walk. He proved that, you know, for that whole 14 kilometer walk, all of these different particles ended up on him. He was like, Alison would have had at yeah. least one of these on her, and she didn't. You know, uh, he walked down to the creek where her body was found. If she'd walked there, there would be these materials on her body. I just thought, yeah, he put so much, such hard work into it. And it was just, it's just amazing because it is a piece of forensic mm, evidence yeah. you don't think about.
2: Yeah, and it makes it just very black and white, doesn't it? And mm, also, completely. I would have thought it would be really good for lawyers, it makes it makes a story, which we've mentioned before, is very powerful mm. for um lawyers when they're trying to convince jurors of something. I think mm-hmm. to have like a, a story and a how and a why and a where is very helpful in securing convictions. So I think again, it's just really useful in that sense and ensuring that like justice is served.
0: Absolutely, no, I completely agree. So on June thirteenth, 2012, Gerard Baden-Clay attended the Indrapilly police station with his lawyer for another interview. Shortly after entering the police station, Gerard's lawyer walked out of the station and addressed the media. He told the waiting news reporters that his client, Gerard Baden-Clay, had been formally charged with his wife's murder. His lawyer said Gerard maintained his innocence and that he would be strenuously defending the charges. Nine days later, on June 22nd, Justice David Boddis denied his bail application, citing that Gerard posed a significant flight risk. Almost exactly two years after he was charged, Gerard Baden Clay's trial began on the 10th of June 2014. He pleaded not guilty to the charges. There had been two years of investigation into Gerard. The police did exceptional work to make sure that he would not get away with murdering his wife. There were approximately 1,500 lines of inquiry and they collected over 500 witness statements. Wow. Heartbreakingly, the court heard extracts from Alison's diary that showed just how lonely she was in her marriage. An extract from the diary showed that Alison had detailed her feelings and had listed the things that made her sad. Some of those notes were, quote, "'When I'm alone, I relax. My partner gets angry when I parent my girls a lot. They get away with things.' My partner's greatest fear is letting people down. It hurts me when my partner won't give me a proper hug. I feel the most lonely when my partner won't sleep in the same bed. Earlier, in April 2010, her diary had been more positive. She wrote a list of gratitudes that included being grateful for a loving text she had received from Gerard. But, as we heard earlier, Gerard had been having an affair since 2008, and it was clear from her entries that Alison had noticed a change in her marriage. Later on in the year 2010, she'd written, quote, I would give anything if my partner would love me and make love to me. I wish my husband loved me like he did before we were married. If only I had put some more work into our marriage and not just been a mother and forgot about being a wife. Sometimes oh, at night, I feel lonely and I cry. Entries written in 2011 show what we already know that Alison found out about the affair. She wrote, had so many opportunities to tell me, let me believe it was all my fault and therefore I was at your mercy. Force me to look at you, that's where you wanted me. Do you regret the whole thing or just getting caught? Another entry said, does she ever say she feels bad because you're married? I'm really hurt. You said I was so different to her and you laughed. Why? The prosecution also drew the court's attention to a diary entry made on the 18th of April, just the day before the police suspect Alison was killed, and two days before Gerard reported her missing. They said that it showed that Alison had discovered that Gerard had once again gone back to his lover and had restarted his affair with Tony. She wrote, Were you prepared to live with the guilt if I hadn't found out? 40th birthday, four weeks later it started. Another line written said, I couldn't go back to her even if I wanted to, which the court inferred was Alison writing something that Gerard had said. Underneath this, she had written, Dirty. Find the whole thing dirty. Maybe I'm prudent. Still get sick in my stomach. Then, after this, the handwriting on the next page looks a bit different, and the police say that it was Gerard who had written those words. This page shows a sketch drawing of a floor plan, which matched Tony McHugh's apartment at the time. One room had Bedroom 1 written on it, and then this room was circled. The prosecution told the court that this showed that Alison was a wife desperate for answers from her husband about his lover. They said that it was proof that Alison and Gerard had been talking about his affair the night before she was murdered. The defence took a different approach and said that the diary entry simply proved that Alison was depressed, and it supported their argument that she had taken her own life. The pathologist had actually written in his reports that there had been evidence of blunt force trauma to Alison's head, and he suspected she'd suffered a possible subdural haemorrhage, i.e. traumatic brain injury. He said other injuries that also pointed to blunt force trauma was a chipped tooth and bruising to her left chest wall. The ME said that these injuries were also conclusive with smothering or strangulation. He said that the likely cause of death was from some form of assault on her body, However, in a pre-trial hearing, the defence made an application for this evidence to not be heard at the trial by the jury, as they claimed that the Emmys' findings were merely impermissible speculation.
2: Either way though, speculation or not, it's incredibly hard to hit yourself round the head fatally, and it's impossible to suffocate or strangle yourself. Like, just speculation or not, to my mind, I feel like if they even get mentioned in court then that would be like enough to kind of hint to the jurors, you know what I mean? Like none of this, they've said absolutely nothing that would suggest suicide to me.
0: Unfortunately, the defence were successful in their application and the judge ordered that Dr Milner, the ME, would not be able to make any speculative commentary about these injuries or what might have caused them. Hence while the jury heard that there was no conclusive cause of death. The judge did return a favour to the prosecution, though, and allowed them to have expert evidence heard by three doctors and one professor regarding the scratch marks on Gerard's face. The defence had argued that they should not allow these experts, as scratches were well within the knowledge and common sense of the jury, and they should be able to make up their own minds on whether the marks were scratches, or whether they were caused by a razor, as Gerard was arguing. Justice Applegarth dismissed this and allowed four expert witnesses to testify that the oh. abrasions on Jared's face were consistent with fingernail scratches. Yep, three doctors, one professor. Mm. Both the prosecution and the defense brought in witnesses in the form of Alison's friends to speak to her mental health. Because the ME could not determine a cause of death, the defense said that there was no proof that she had been murdered by anyone, much less their client, her own husband, the father of her three daughters. They used testimony from friends to try and paint a picture that Allison was depressed and suicidal, but it didn't really work. Allison's friends didn't realise she was in such a negative relationship. To the outside world, the baden Clays had painted a picture-perfect life to everyone, and even some of Allison's own friends hadn't known that Gerard had been having an affair. This helped the prosecution show the court that Gerard had isolated Allison from her friends and family and had been psychologically abusing her for years. He had conditioned her to believe that if she left him, people would call her a failure and know that she failed in her marriage and that she'd failed to keep him happy and content. The prosecution supported this assertion by using other extracts from Alison's diary that stated mm. that she was feeling exactly this way. The extract that detailed this feeling of failure was written under the heading Fear.
2: Yeah, the diary definitely is quite indicative of someone who has like suffered some sort of form of like psychological abuse isn't it like it's Mm -hmm. so downtrodden it's very blaming the self Mm -hmm. um yeah just all the sorts of things that like for most people you hear this and at no point does it. I I would never say oh she should have done more but they Mm -hmm. are quite often like that is the mindset of someone who has had like quite a controlling partner and it just it makes a very harrowing reading doesn't it
0: yeah, it like really got to me actually reading the diary entries because I felt exactly the same way. It was just so clear that he had isolated her and yeah, he was being quite emotionally abusive towards her. Kind of adding to this, the prosecution also told the jury that Alison was on antidepressants due to the toxic relationship she was in. The defence said that this firstly proved their theory that she had killed herself, and then they said that possibly she was having hallucinogenic side effects to her antidepressants and that she'd gone on a walk, decided to venture into the creek as part of an adventure, and then she'd fallen and died. It's just... I don't know why it just makes me so angry when lawyers come up with stupid arguments like that you just get to have one argument and stick to it do you know what i mean she was either depressed and suicidal or she was out on an adventure that went wrong and suffering some kind of hallucinogenic reaction and yeah. you know adding to that obviously the prosecution have already shown that the creek was 14 kilometers away from her house um and there was no botanical material or kind of on her clothing that was consistent with her surroundings so kind of prove that she hadn't walked anywhere i don't know it just winds me up like yeah be better <laughs> Yeah. So, on the 15th of July 2014, the jury of seven men and five women found Gerard Badenclay guilty of the murder of his wife, Alison Badenclay, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 15 years behind bars. On the 7th of August, Gerard appealed his conviction, and on the 8th of December, his conviction for murder was substituted for a lesser conviction of manslaughter. On what grounds? Oh, it's hard to say. I think the media really spun it out in a way that I think caused a lot of public outcry and I'm not saying there shouldn't have been a public outcry but just because of that it's just been so hard to tell what has been fabricated or like enhanced for media attention. But in Queensland, in Australia, like most other countries, a murder conviction relies on the prosecution proving that the defendant had intent to murder or intent to cause GBH and the jury needs to be convinced of this beyond a reasonable doubt. In this case, the prosecution had to prove that Gerard Baden-Clay did cause the death of Alison Baden-Clay and that he did intend to cause her death, or at the very least, he did intend to cause her GBH. Queensland law explicitly states that the prosecution doesn't need to provide a motive, although, as we know, a motive is often something that can prove intent. So, as far as I can tell, Gerard argued his appeal on a few grounds, but the one that actually... For want of a better word, stuck was the ground that the jury's verdict was unreasonable. He said that the prosecution's evidence wasn't strong enough to prove that he'd had intent to kill Alison and therefore he should not have been found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, there's a lot of confusion surrounding whether Gerard changed his story regarding what happened to Alison. It seems that the media suggested that he did, but I can't really see any definitive proof of that. It seems kind of that the media spun Gerard's appeal in a way that would sell papers. They said he changed his story and admitted his guilt, but it seems that he didn't. I think he merely said that he could understand that some of the circumstantial evidence in the trial made him look bad. Um, I'm not pretending to understand this argument from a legal perspective because I really don't understand it. It's, I don't know, I think it's quite moronic to be honest, but really it does seem that it was a ground for appeal that they didn't actually think would work. It was just more or less one that they just flung in with the other grounds and it seemed to be the only one that stuck. Generally it seems that his lies throughout the investigation and the trial almost worked in his favour because he used that to say that he'd been painted in a bad light and although that made him a bad man it didn't mean that he killed Alison and it didn't mean that he had intent to kill her. Bizarrely, the Court of Appeal agreed and they looked at the evidence, and whilst they said that some of it did support the prosecution's case, it wasn't sufficiently strong enough to rule out other possibilities of how she could have died. And again, I'm not claiming to understand why they did this. Um, I'm telling you, it really makes no sense to me, really. Mm. Thankfully, though, two years later, after huge public outcry, including a protest of 4,000 individuals who stood on the steps of the High Court of Australia... On the 31st of August 2016, the High Court of Australia reinstated the original conviction of murder for Gerard Baden-Clay. He now has no further avenues to appeal his conviction, and therefore he will serve his minimum required term of 15 years in prison.
2: Good, and I do hope that as a minimum. Mm.
0: Gerard has never said why he did what he did or what happened that night. But from the scratch marks on his face, the red marks on his body, and the diary entries, the most logical explanation to most is this. Tony and Gerard were on the phone, and as she admitted, she had told him to tell Alison about the affair. Gerard told Alison, or she found out in another way, and desperate to find answers, she wrote in her diary all of her feelings, and she asked Gerard to explain himself and map out what had happened between him and Tony. They got into an argument. Perhaps Gerard said he was going to leave her. Either way, that argument got physical. Alison fought back. She hit him in the chest. She scratched at his face. And he either hit her, strangled her, or threw her to the ground, causing a head injury. At some point, we know her body was outdoors in their back garden, likely on the back patio. Maybe this is where they fought, or maybe he took her body outside after he'd killed her. He then took her body out to their car, wherever she was bleeding from, most likely her head, pressed up against the panel on the door and left a blood stain he drove her body to the creek and placed it by the water possibly assuming that the water would carry her away which obviously mm. it didn't perhaps he left it on the shore knowing that her body would decompose faster in the heat or perhaps he had a small bit of remorse in him and wanted her body to be found after he'd left Alison's body there he drove back to his home that night and went to bed the next morning, he sent her a number of fake cutesy text messages asking where she was and updating her that their daughters were still asleep. It's so cold,
2: isn't it? To be able to get up and act like normal and finish executing your plan, to mm. me, is just... And that's why I'm kind of surprised that they ever got the sentence reduced, because I know it's not necessarily, like, intent, but the fact that he then you know, was able to keep playing this lie the next morning, you know, in front of his daughters, able to make his daughter's breakfast and look them in the eye whilst knowing what he's done, to me, like, that isn't manslaughter, that isn't a fight gone wrong.
0: No, I know, I definitely, I completely, like, get that.
2: Do you know what I mean? Like, it's very calculating.
0: It is, it is, and also it's just, it's not like he pushed her, she hit her head, he called the police. Yeah. He called an ambulance. He drove her body 14 kilometres away from their house. He put it by the creek, by the water. Do you know what I mean? Like That is intent, regardless of if you intended it to do it in the first place. And actually, that's something that was said when the original conviction was reduced. They said something like... Uh, there was evidence that there had been a physical altercation which was not intended to kill her or cause her serious harm, like maybe she fell and hit her head or something, but then that Gerard panicked and left her body at Colo Creek in the hope that it would wash away. I'm like, what? That makes it okay then. I know that you can legally argue that that doesn't maybe specifically show intent, but it definitely shows the sort of callous, depraved man he is, that he could just have an accident and then dump his wife's body. mm So after he'd woken up, he'd phoned his father, panicking that she was gone. He then got in his car and started, in inverted commas, searching for Alison. At 7.15am, he made that phone call to the police to report her missing. He told them that he didn't want to be alarmist, but that he was just so confused that his wife hadn't come home. He never helped search for his missing wife because he knew exactly where she was. He crashed his vehicle to either get sympathy or to try and create new bruising, or as an attempt to create reasonable doubt later on at trial. He has never shown any remorse for taking Alison's life, for killing his daughter's mother. In my view, having researched this for quite a long time, I definitely think he's one of the coldest killers I've kind of ever researched just because he made this entire investigation about himself. His one and only statement to the media was solely about him and how he was doing and what he was doing in his car accident. It wasn't about his wife once.
2: Yeah, I do agree with you. Like, I think Yeah, anything related to kind of domestic abuse always makes me so angry. I find it just abhorrent in the first place. Just so selfish, like, just have an affair and just leave. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't care that you don't have any money and stuff. Just the damage you probably had already done to this woman by staying with her and yeah making her feel like it was her fault is already huge but then to rob your children of their mother just because your life's starting to get a bit inconvenient and a bit messy I just think it's barbaric and yeah you can only hope that well I don't know maybe for them it's easier if they don't like aren't absorbed by hate but part of me just hopes like you know he hasn't just lost his wife like he lost his family mm-hmm. Everything and I just wonder as well, like, what was he thinking when he was driving around pretending to look for her? Like, yeah, I just wonder like, what, what do you think was going through his head at that moment just to be able to not, yeah, come across completely stressed or manic. It's just crazy, isn't it? You kind of always think that people who aren't murderers or serial killers from like a kid but just maybe do like something like kill their wife you always imagine that at some point like the guilt and that will start eating them alive mm. and it's just always quite scary the fact that these people who've just been a normal person their whole life can suddenly kill their beloved partner and not just become like a quaking mess do you know what i mean just yeah I, it's mm. scary isn't it it
0: is yeah i think and This is, like, my opinion, so no one come at me, because this isn't confirmed anywhere. But my gut feeling tells me that he had... That his parents and his sister knew, and that he had them as kind of, like, the support system, so that... so And that kind of helped him with his not breaking down kind of thing. Because, like, they had a very, very close-knit relationship anyway. Even, like, to the point where... I think he, he proposed to Alison on his parents' wedding anniversary. He got married on his parents' wedding anniversary. Like... He was very, very close-knit How with them. How someone
2: who loves their family so much go on to destroy their family? It's just crazy. I know, it
0: is. It is awful. And I, I just think that I'm sure they definitely knew what he was up to and what he'd done, which was probably why Olivia was so shit-scared in that uh, one kind mm-hmm. of interview they did with the media. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's obviously you don't know. And, like, I am speculating, but just given like kind of the research that I've done into like them, it, they just seem incredibly close knit. It was all just very very bizarre. And I'm not saying close knit people like are bad. I'm not saying it like that at all. But just their their relationship that they had, like it I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised at all if they were ha- trying to help cover up for him. No, I agree. So on the thirty first of July, twenty fifteen, Allison's family started the Allison Baden Clay Foundation. Taken from their website. The Alison Baden-Clay Foundation aims to build a national community that acknowledges the prevalence of domestic and family violence and seeks to create an Australia that is committed to eliminating and taking concrete action to stop domestic and family violence. As part of the foundation, they also have Alison's Gift, which is a programme designed for employers and workplaces to be trained into recognising the signs of domestic and family violence to keep their employees safe.
2: Well, that's very practical and...
0: Yeah. I thought no I thought that was I thought that was amazing. I thought Alison's gift was an amazing mm. idea. So in 2017 Alison's daughters and parents won their battle to get the life insurance money that had been transferred to Gerard's estate to be transferred to Alison's estate that her father Jeff is the executor of. The 800,000 Australian dollars will be divided equally between Alison's three daughters. Gerard Baden-Clay's family had been fighting to keep the money in their son's estate for when he was released from prison.
2: What That's just ridiculous. Let's not even get into it. It's so ridiculous.
0: (laughs) In that same year, 2017, Gerard Baden-Clay reached out to his daughters from behind bars and requested that he see photos of them and have access to their school report cards so he could see how they were getting on in their lives. The girls at the time were 15, 13 and 10, and they hadn't visited their father in prison since his conviction. They are living with their auntie and grandparents from Alison's side of the family, and they've made it clear they have no intention of speaking to their father. In 2018, Allison's two eldest daughters made their first public appearance to see a young ballerina awarded a scholarship in their mother's name. The Allison Baden-Clay Senior Program Scholarship, which was set up to honor Allison's memory and supports young dancers from Queensland Ballet Dance Academy, awards $5,000 each year to a young dancer to help her achieve her dreams of becoming a professional ballerina. At this award ceremony, Allison's sister Vanessa spoke and said, Today is an exciting day as we see my sister and her legacy live on. She's assisting a young dancer to pursue her dream and strive to be the best that she can be. It's on occasions like this that my family reflect on Alison's achievements and celebrate her successes. She was born an amazing woman and one that was and still is an inspiration to many. Alison was born to dance and excelled at it by the age of four. She had that spark, that bright smile, the soft arms and pointed feet and she filled the stage. Alison was the ever-feminine ballet dancer with a spirited stage presence. Thank you so, so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you again, Tanya, for the listener suggestion. Thanks also to everyone else who has reached out with suggestions. They are on the list. I'm just kind of making my way through them all. I mentioned things in today's episodes about, like, the scratches on Gerard's face and the marks on his body. um, And I'll put photos of those on social media for you to see. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at infraction.thepod or find us on Facebook lastly we have released our first wind down with the news episode and this is available on patreon along with our backlog of wind down episodes so if you want to support the show and get more content then you can find us on patreon and thank you to all of those who have done so already thanks for listening and we'll see you next week bye bye